The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight I thought, in the last week, um, you might remember, first week and, and last week, looking at our own um, habits of mind, attitudes of mind, and just getting a sense of how we might find uh, just a basic goodness, how we can connect, how we can learn to trust that, and uh, increase our skill at keeping that in mind as we live our lives, that capacity of the heart, that potential in our hearts to care, to love, to appreciate, to trust. And then uh, tonight, you know, as I share and then people share and ask questions in our whole group, um, to really be interested, reflect, reflective on what gets in the way and how does forgiveness as a general category, a way of, you know, I see forgiveness as a way of consciously addressing our attachment to negativity, that somehow we, out of habit or through lack of clarity, think that the resentment, the aversion, the fear is functional, that it, it's taken care of somehow protecting me or taking care of me in some way. And so then the activity of forgiveness is realizing that's just not true. So, which means, unfortunately, I have to let go of my resentment. It's not easy for us to do that because we, uh, we grow familiar with our resentments and our anger and our fear and all the different ways that we close down and push away. And we can uh, carry this topic over to next week when we have small groups. You know, feel free to bring it up in the big group context tonight, but also next week as you look at your week, live your week, and just notice, because, it, because it's actually really interesting when we consciously catch ourselves um, living out aversion in all of its different forms. I mean, it's totally understandable that we do it unconsciously, but when we, like in the light of awareness, see ourselves hating somebody, resenting something, judging somebody harshly, demeaning somebody, putting them down, hating ourselves in all the different ways, you know, reviving some shame, not feeling good enough. Just so interesting how we fall into that habit of basically harming ourselves or harming others as if there's not enough (laughs) difficulty in the world already. We feel obliged to participate in poking and punching and burning and hurting each other, ourselves and others. And then uh, seeing that the, the real threshold or the, the necessary cause for more regularly, more deeply touching that, that potential for the heart to expand and to be light and buoyant, more free, more loving, more compassionate, is the putting down, finding our way to put down our resentments. So that, that's why we call it forgiveness. Right? That's the price we pay It's the price the heart pays to be free. And the the nice thing about the, you know, that concept of forgiveness is we 
we understand we can't do it in a superficial way. There was an interesting article in the New York Times several years ago about somebody who had written a book on forgiveness, and uh, he was a psychologist. And, you know, just saying in that article that actually we do more harm forgiving in a superficial way because real forgiveness requires that it's like a, a natural movement. And this is always, you know, from, a Buddha, from the Buddha's point of view, everything has to be able to be seen, understood as a movement of nature, as opposed to, oh, I'm forgiving. It's more, our job is more to understand how forgiveness can be a natural process. And then what are the causes for that natural, what initiates that natural process? And so it's like the mind, awareness, feels, sees the enormity of that, you know, the weight of resentment, the weight of not forgiving, the weight of attaching to our anger or our resentments, our stories. Right? And that's the cause for putting down the weight, is really feeling what it feels like to be afraid of somebody or to hate somebody or to resent somebody, something. So we can't do this unless we're being real. This is, uh, came through the email recently from uh, tricycle, they send out quotes. Tricycle? Tricycle, the magazine. They send you more quotes than you want to read if you're on their list. <laughs> but one from Thich Nhat Hanh recently, just a few days ago actually. Dharma is what the Buddha taught. It is the way of understanding and love. How to understand, how to love, how to make understanding and love into real things. I like that, to keep it, you know, to break through the cycle of superficiality or our, or our ideas about love. So this process of forgiveness, you know, when we're, we're really asking the question, what's asking for forgiveness? Or what's unfinished in my heart, unresolved in my mind and heart? and body. I mean, this is a, if we can, when we can, like in our daily sitting time, or if we have a relatively unencumbered day, not so stressful day, then even longer than our formal sitting time, we can actually be interested as we do our life to see, you know, as we see what we see as we do our life, hear what we hear, have the experiences we're having, it will evoke, it will um, reflect all of those places, those wounds, all those places of unresolved pain, unresolved sorrow, places we've ignored, places we hoped would just go away, or whatever they might be. So this week, and hopefully forever, we can learn to take responsibilities, take responsibility for these wounds, and to realize that whatever intuition we have about cultivating love and compassion, that it starts here, you know, in this messy place with the heart that doesn't feel good enough or feels like somebody's to blame for the difficulty in my life, haven't been treated fairly. Because, of course, what we catch ourselves wanting to do all the time is to bypass it. So we get, we catch ourselves being dependent on, on sort of idealistic stories or situations in our life that have a lot of, on the surface, a lot of very compelling, you know. We hear something in the news about somebody who's really sweet. But if what we'll find, I remember when I first started doing a lot of metta, 
you know, I'd whip it up. I, I was really kind of hardcore, you know, and I'd follow the instructions. I'd put a lot of effort in. But as I, I got some momentum, you know, where I was imagining love, really holding my attention there, using the phrases, using the images, or whatever would work, um, what, what we always end up meeting as if we do get some movement towards expansion, the heart opening up, that openness can't not include all, our, all the unfinished business. So if we have a lot of unfinished emotional business, places where our heart has been habitually tight and resentful and not feeling good enough or full of blame, full of complaining, right? You see that, if we talked about this, I think, week one, and, and you saw it probably, those of you who read the first chapter from Venerable Analio's book, because he talks about this in terms of the tradition where they, you know, aversion and all of its different expressions can exist in a heart that's expanding with love or compassion. It, it just doesn't fit in the same mind. So there's no shortcut. <laughs> you know, we'd like to just go right to the love. But we have to, and, it, and it's really sort of a, we need to go right for the love because then it will expose, like, we kind of hit the wall, like, why is my heart so hard? What's going on here? What's not being seen? What's asking for forgiveness? What's asking for acceptance? What's asking for a closer attention? What's asking to be felt as if it's never going to change? Open to as if it's never going to get better? And this is where the practice of forgiveness, you know, this is the practice of and, you know, forgiveness is really a wisdom practice. So is love. Just like love is a wisdom practice, wisdom is a love practice, right? Because there's so much wisdom in forgiveness. It really comes from understanding, like in the reflection we did tonight. It's precisely because my heart understands the force of habit and that it's impersonal, that I'm willing to ask for forgiveness. or It's precisely because I can see that other person and their unskillful actions as the activity of nature that I'm willing to forgive them. If I see them as a person who did something wrong, they should be punished. You know that story I, I mentioned a number of times, and you hear it a lot about the person rowing across the Ganges River in the middle of the night, smashes into another boat. The person who's rowing, you know, starts to curse, you know, didn't you see me? I had my lantern. What are you, an idiot? And he grabs his lantern and he gets a little closer to the boat he crashed into and he sees that it's empty. It was just floating on the river. Right? And immediately the anger goes away. Because anger, resentment, all of that depends on the idea that there's somebody to blame. Even if it's the world, we can personify the world. You know, damn world we live in. So unjust or it's so, you know, bad or complicated. And then once we personified it, we can hate it, we can resent it, we can dismiss it, think it's bad. But when we really see that it's just a boat floating on the river, it's hard to hate it. It's hard to resent it. So this is like if we're um, in the way the dynamic works, you know, if we're willing to, when it arises naturally or when we develop some talent of inviting the mind into an expansive state of love and compassion and joy. We find our ways, we find our tricks that work for our mind, images, whatever. 
and then we'll bump up against the unfinished business in the heart, the places where the heart is still clenched, but then maybe it was buried. So it, it took some degree of expansion, some open-heartedness, some love, before that movement of the heart in the direction of including everything realized, I got to include that, <laughs> right? Because the more the heart opens, the more it's like a, that vacuum, that space reveals the places where there's still a clenched fist or a tight heart or a, you know, an old unattended sorrow or unintended wound, resentment. And then the idea here is not to actually abandon the practice, but just let it morph into compassion that can compassion, is there compassion that can include this? And then if it's useful, do the formal compassion or forgiveness reflection. You know, is this a place to ask for forgiveness? Is this a place to offer forgiveness? What is, what is being asked for as I feel into this? And this is often, this is not so different than even as we move into the different relationships we have in the world. We don't want to go thinking we know what's being asked for. We want to show up in a more receptive place. Like, what is this moment asking for? Stephen Levine, you know, tells funny stories of, uh, for a long time, he and, and his wife also uh, did a lot of work with people who were dying. And he's written a really good book about some of that work, too. Living into Life. Anybody remember the title of that book about? Yeah, Who Dies. I guess that's Who Dies. And, and there's another one, Living into? Healing into Life and Death. Thanks. Yeah, so a couple of good books. Um, but he tells one story about just being in that nimble place. Somebody was in hospice, dying, really difficult place, taking pain meds. And of course, you get constipated when you're taking a lot of pain meds. Some of you know this. And so the guy not only is dying, not only has pain, but he's really constipated on top of it all. And uh, you know, just being able to show up and to be sensitive and to not be confused by everything you're feeling. Because sometimes, you know, when we do encounter our own stuff or other people's stuff, we get tight because we want to help or we get tight because we don't know how to help, right? I mean, we can, there's all kinds of reasons to get tight. And he just gives the example of how, I forget exactly what he did, but he just did something really stupid to make everybody laugh which made the guy want to poop, which made him happy, you know? And, it's, and he, the point is like uh, willingness to be a fool because you're not, you're not following a script. It's really more of a natural movement. And this is hard for us because it means not having a plan, you know, in terms of forgiveness, in terms of meeting our own places that are hard. Because I don't know about you, but as I've felt into, opened up to these places over the years of practice, they're always confusing. I mean, I always feel like a rank beginner when I'm noticing something that I hadn't noticed before and sort of coming online, so to speak. And there it is. You know, it just feels like Something's tight, something's raw, something that I don't want to feel is there to be felt. You know, and, and then the more we approach it with humility and a willingness to not know, then we start to see the threads that connected with you know, other attitudes and patterns of thinking and ways of reacting and And just following these threads of suffering, 
And there's like so much is built in that wants to deflect the attention outward into blaming, to complaining, to being interested in distraction. It's really hard to sort of stay with these threads that we feel in the heart. And what really helps is this basic movement of forgiveness where the heart understands like this great line You've heard me say, you've read probably from Sylvia Burstein about how everything is breathtakingly the only way that it can be. My heart opening with equanimity can respond with compassion. Something like that, she says or writes. And that's really the understanding of forgiveness is, is the mind, the wisdom in the mind somehow having the intelligence, the insight that distraction, running, ignoring is just too exhausting. It's like, it doesn't work. So we're willing to turn toward and to realize that the weight we're carrying, like resisting it is just too much or denying it is too much work. So I'm going to let it teach me what it has to teach me. I don't think I read this poem. I read it recently, but I don't think it was to the Buddhist studies group. So forgive me if I did. But this is Pesha Gertler's poem, The Healing Time. It's called Finally on My Way to Yes. I guess it was in the book, The Healing Time. Finally on my way to yes. Finally on my way to yes, I bumped, to, I bumped into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hier- hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that sent me down the wrong street again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them up, and I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. Somebody in our community sent me this from Susan Pullis. A friend is... Right, and we can be a friend to ourselves. And the line is, a friend is someone who hears the song in your heart and sings it back to you when you can't remember it. And this is a, you know, there's something in the forgiveness practice. It's like, it's, a, it's interesting how we keep forgetting that it's a possibility in seeing what we see to forgive ourselves and others and to ask for forgiveness. It's just like that primal softening move. I don't have to be hard. I can forgive. I can understand. Right? Because forgiveness comes from understanding that everything's nature, that it's breathtakingly the only way that it can be. And that meeting nature with contraction is heartbreaking. It's unnecessary, it's unhelpful. You know, in this basic... uh, not, you see how wisdom and love in the tradition is, it's really about the mind not being fixed, fixed with the view. So love, this inclusive quality, this view or way of being that includes, it requires any fixedness to be dropped. And where do we really see the mind getting fixed, right? It's generally when there's hardness. Energetically, there's hardness when we're sure. 
even when we're sure we're right. I mean, even if we're not, it doesn't seem like we're averse. But that crunch in the heart, and uh, you know, once we see that it's always a cause for suffering, always a cause for stress, the, the burden is here, always. And then we need that, like that movement towards forgiveness, the letting go, the releasing of that contraction. So it's just that basic move. I don't need to hold on. I mean, I don't know about you, but every day, many times, several times at least, every day, I experience something in my life right there in a very ordinary way that seems really unacceptable about life, about what's happening. And I find myself in this crossroads where I can believe that thought, that strong sense that no, or I can relax. And every time I really check it out, both options absolutely exist. Like, I know it sounds funny to say this, but that everything can be accepted. Or the heart doesn't need to be tight, period. I mean, it might be tight, but we don't have to make that choice. I don't know if you read the second chapter in the book. Some of you probably have, but in that chapter, um, Venerable Analio talks about that famous line in the Metta Sutta where the Buddha says something like, um, just as a mother protects her only child, uh, protects her life, her only child. And he says that uh, for a number of reasons, it's not what it seems to be. And I've heard or read Ajahn Tanisaro making the same point, slightly differently, but basically the same point. That it's not, we're not trying to relate to all things as a mother might relate to her child. The point that's really trying, being tried, uh, that's being brought out here is this great um, commitment to protection, protecting ourselves and all beings. And how do we protect ourselves and protect all beings? By uh, seeing the difference between getting tight and releasing, relaxing, letting go. Really keeping that choice in mind and starting to look at all the little ways we unconsciously justify being tight and all the little and big ways we realize one more time the heart can relax, the heart can open, the heart can forgive, the heart can allow So when we, even if our heart feels tight, the body, mind feels clenched, the desire, the very natural, really a desire you can't get rid of to protect this heart, and then by extension, protecting everybody else's tight heart, you know, we can see this wish for release, for opening, for forgiving, we can tune into that. And it's really about remembering that, that possibility as we move through our days. And you know, the Buddha was pretty extreme about it. In that chapter, uh, Venerable Analio um, has the version of the simile of the saw that's found in the Chinese canon. One of the things he's doing in this book, as many of you know, he's often uses not the text from the Pali Canon, but from one of the other early sources where these teachings of the Buddha were recorded to show how strong of a similarity there are in these ancient texts. 
to get a sense of what was there as, as opposed to maybe what got added later because it exists in one of the texts but not the sort of texts that existed in India later after the Pali Canon had gone to Sri Lanka early on or China. So this is from, uh, I believe, the Chinese text but it's a very similar version to what you find in the Pali Canon. The simile of the saw, this is the Buddha, you should train so that if others punch you, stone you, beat you with sticks, or cut you with knives, your mind does not change. You will not utter malevolent words, and based on that, you arouse a mental attitude. And based on that, you arouse a mental, mental attitude of metta and compassion for those who beat you. You should train so that if these were, thieves were to come by and cut off, to cut apart piece by piece with a sharp saw, your mind does not change. You will not utter malevolent words to those who are cutting you up. Based on that, you arouse a mental attitude of metta and compassion. With your mind imbued with metta, dwell having pervaded one direction and the same with the second, the third, the fourth direction and also the four intermediate directions, above and below, completely and everywhere, being without mental shackles, resentment, ill will, or contention with the mind imbued with metta that is supremely vast and great, boundless and well-cultivated, dwell pervading the entire world. And in the same way with compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, where you probably recognize it, it's that passage we chanted earlier tonight, that's found in many of the discourses, which is the way the Buddha suggested people keep this reflection alive, no matter the conditions, right? So to build up to the time we're in that setting and someone's cutting off our limbs, we can just start noticing like how we are in traffic or when the toaster burns our toast or you know the cat scratches we were doing our taxes the other night, and then the cat started to eat the form. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these little irritants that show up, and, uh, or we have a memory. It's like those people that we have unfinished business with, and then they come to mind, you know, that feeling. So what do we do with that, those feelings? Do we fall back or cultivate an attitude of loving-kindness, unbounded, undefended, inclusive? Or do we dig in? Do we basically believe the story that demands armor and distance and separation and better than, worse than, different kinds of divisions, ways we fragment our experience? And this choice, I mean, I think what's really useful, especially for those of us, you know, that we're taking this class, we've decided to study this topic, then it's really important that we get interested in this very concrete way of, um, like, just keep it simple, two frames. A frame of love that's willing to include, always willing to include, and which means to put down the armor, the sense of separation, the ideas that reinforce a sense of separation, difference. Like uh, some themes, uh, reflections that have teachers have, all the way back to the time of the Buddha, recommended, like walking around as you see people and realizing each person you see, and you can do it right now as you look around the room, everybody here in this room has to navigate their death, their dying process. Right? You see how it changes like when we look around the room, and it will be unique, each person, the particulars of how each of us navigate that time when we're dying. Right? But universally, it will be a challenging time for us each of us, and we all have to go through that. Or we could look, you know, 
today, tonight, or any time, everybody we see is going to experience great loss. In fact, everything they imagine they possess will be taken from them. Absolutely everything. We can just sense that with each other. The kind of loss that people have already experienced. Or any other number of reflections. You see how it it really changes how we are with each other when we realize that about each other. It's harder to maintain a sense of separation when we realize that we both are going to have to navigate that space of loss, of death, and also of joys, too. I think I get my best laughs during the day, you know, when I catch myself doing distraction and, uh, and just the tightness, you know, looking for something fun to eat or looking for some entertainment on the internet, some news article that is interesting, engaging, or catch myself going to the, justifying going to the co-op to go shopping when we don't really need much but I want something, you know, that kind of thing. Or just all the ways I avoid doing what needs to be done, you know, what's on my plate. And uh, how stressful it is to be avoiding doing what needs to be done. And then I, I catch it, you know, and there's that, that laughter and uh, the kind of breaking of my heart a little bit, like, Oh, life is so crazy that in trying to be happy, here I am doing exactly what causes my body and mind stress. Again, one more time. Maybe I'll just, before opening it up for discussion, I'll share a couple more things. One is this sutta. Um, forget if Venerable Analio mentions this in the book somewhere. I think he does. But I, I went ahead and got uh, a translation from Access to Insight, Ajahn Tanisaro's translation. And this is a well-known, some of you will recognize this. And I think it has to do, it really teaches us something about forgiveness coming from a deep place of wisdom. So the Buddha was in the uh, bamboo grove, a famous place at the time of the Buddha where the monks and nuns would stay. The squirrel sanctuary was the particular place there at that retreat place. And um, this person came to see the Buddha. And uh, I guess he had gone forth um, but he was really angry about his life as a monk. And and the text goes, angered and displeased, he went to the Blessed One and on arrival insulted and cursed him with rude and harsh words. (laughs) So it's just sort of interesting to see what the Buddha does in this situation. So the Buddha said to him, what do you think, Brahmin? Do friends and colleagues, relatives and kinsmen come to you as guests? Yes, Master Gautama. Sometimes friends and colleagues, relatives and kinsmen come to me as guests. And what do you think? Do you serve them with staple and non-staple foods and delicacies? Yes, sometimes I serve them with staples and non-staple foods and delicacies. And if they don't accept them, to whom do those foods belong? Well, if they don't accept them, those foods are mine, are all mine. And then the Buddha says, in the same way that with which you have insulted me, 
who is not insulting, that with which you um, taunted me, who is not taunting, that with which you have berated me, who is not berating, that I do not accept from you. It's all yours. It's all (laughs) yours. Whoever returns insult to one who is insulting, returns taunts to one who is taunting, returns a berating to one who is berating, is said to be eating together, sharing company with that person. But I am neither eating together nor sharing your company. It is all yours. It is all yours. So this is sort of what we can see because However deeply entrenched those old pains, resentments, unfinished emotional business, whatever it is, it's getting renewed, like there's a meal being shared. Right? It's, a, it's an alive thing, the resentment. You can sometimes, we can see that it's a churning, moving, active thing. So it only takes a moment of the heart realizing I don't need to participate in this. That's really a a useful thing because otherwise, because it can feel so heavy, because it's been practiced continuously for so long, we can imagine it's like this huge, you know, edifice of resentment. And that we'll have to chip away at it for years and years and years before it's removed from the heart. But actually, all it takes is that turning of the mind where we realize it's nature, not self. Like, I don't have to share the meal with you. But it's not a distancing, it's a willingness, because the option of not sharing the meal, you're still there, you're still understanding. Like in other texts, uh, situations where the Buddha is, and I think he actually he, me- he mentions it later in this, in this discourse, it's like the way to not feast with this person, to not get involved in his berating, is to have compassion. Not just for yourself, but also for the, the person. It's the same with the simile of the saw that discourse I read earlier where, you know, even if someone were sawing off your limbs, you should maintain an attitude of loving kindness. It's not only to protect yourself, but it's to protect them, the people who are doing this really unskillful act. Because having a lot of compassion for them, because if you're somebody who's willing to saw off another person's limbs, you can bet your mind, your heart, is in a pretty narrow place, right? a pretty unpleasant place. So to have compassion, to have a, a beautiful, inclusive attitude, instead of thinking that because a person is acting from this really negative, narrow space, they deserve our hatred. That's what they need doesn't make sense. They're really suffering. I mean, imagine the politicians that exist that push your buttons or the people who are acting in ways that are you see as being really destructive. It just seems so appropriate for us to demean them or hate them, want to harm them. And it seems strange, you know, and this is another thing we can challenge ourselves with this week, to wish them well. May your heart open. May you see things as they are. May you find the real, honest-to-goodness liberation of the heart. May you learn how to forgive and be forgiven. I mean, why couldn't we wish this for those people that you know, are easy for us to demean or hate or judge. So maybe I'll leave it here. We have about a little less than 15 minutes. But it'd be nice to 
So again, the, the topic tonight and then perhaps for your small group next week is to, now that we have some intuitive sense of the possibility of the heart being unbounded, this immeasurable, boundless, expansive state of love, compassion, joy, appreciation, then noticing how that opening at some point will, be, will bump up against our attachment to resentment and anger and judgment and various forms of aversion and fear. Yeah, you want to set us off, Gabe? Um, so someone close to me um, suffered uh, a traumatic event in the past year and uh, just found that coming to mind this week and recently and, and tonight. And, um, yeah, there's some confusion around that. And then just as you were speaking, kind of spontaneously, my mind was reflecting on the person who who did this uh, and um, and just realizing the karma that they made, this person, and... Um, and somehow that helped just realizing that um, yeah I'm not quite sure what it was but uh, some some softening around um, yeah just understanding I guess the, the lawfulness um, and also in all of this it's been interesting um, because I, I also, as my mind reflects on it, and, and more than reflecting verbally, but, but just seeing where my heart is at and my different intentions and, and confusion, not knowing around how to respond, how to be supportive. Um, like... Not not knowing what to do, or just knowing that this like this process is still unfolding in my own heart, and and that a lot of my intentions, reactions are coming out of this non forgiveness or this non deep understanding, and that I really don't know, but but that um, yeah, somehow just being willing to to stay with the process seems useful. And, and I know that, yeah, like, because I don't, yeah, I think a lot of those intentions, it's like my own vicarious trauma and, um, and just having, like, uh, for a few days sort of had that coming up and having my own discomfort and doubt about what I, if I should be doing something. And then I saw um, my friend, who suffered this, and it just was really clear being in the moment with them that I don't know what to do, but just being there with them. Yeah, I'm, I don't have a thought to end it, but I was just appreciating the class and, and also wondering if, if you had any words around, around relating to um, trauma. Yeah, I, I think one thing that, I mean, a couple of thoughts that come to mind. One is to appreciate that uh, what you were talking about, Gabe, about not being able to understand or not being clear, because that's the thing about uh, pain, especially really big pain, is it um, confuses the mind. Like we don't, uh, the mind loses its stability so that means it loses its clarity because of the pain. And so the question is, how can we refine some stability of mind and to be really pragmatic about that? And a lot of times for people who are dealing with trauma, even if it's vicariously, is, uh, is not always looking at the pain. Like it can be a really powerful relative sign of health 
to be willing to turn away from it and just to do whatever it is, you know, just to absorb into some activity that it's safe to not look at, to not feel this, to turn away from it. Yeah. And just another thought I had from what you shared earlier in your comments about getting a little space when you brought the other person who, the perpetrator to mind. Um, Because I think part of when we're even not our own pain, but somebody else's trauma is there's a sense that that person should suffer and that somehow we need to be responsible for that person getting their payback. You know, that's where revenge comes from. But what can break that is to understand that the karma has already happened, the payback has already happened, and we're not responsible. The payback, like when a mind does an evil, unwholesome act, the narrowness of that mind in that moment of acting in the way they acted that is the karma. That's the punishment. That imprint, like however, like if we could imagine ourselves doing something really unskillful, then to do that, the mind has to be in a particular frame. And that doesn't matter if anybody, nobody else sees it, right? Because the impression is on the mind itself. And that's how, this is another, like I said at the very beginning, we always have to be able to understand all this stuff we're talking about as a natural process, not somebody who has remorse, but that there's, because the impression was made in that mind. And so then the mind stream, as that mind continues forward, one mind moment after another, it has and renews that impression from that act. And uh, what I heard in your description, Gabe, is as you were able to bring that person to mind on some intuitive level, you sensed that mind, right? And understood that wouldn't be, that, that mind is suffering. Whether they know they're suffering or not isn't relevant. But it's, a, it's not a mind we would choose to inhabit the mind that did that thing. And uh, in the same thing, like I mentioned with certain politicians that you feel, we feel like we have to hate or oppose, but we could remember, we could use that sort of what Gabe did and imagine the mind that does that, that thinks that way, that acts that way, whatever the person is, whether it's a famous politician or just a boss or and we can have a lot of compassion like, oh yeah, that would be really suffering to be that mind stream, to be living life through that mind that can justify that. Other thoughts? Uh, yeah, Haya, and then we'll go to Bob. Well. It's really interesting because this last week I've been going through a lot of going through my mind with this. Um, what I think, though, what I've been learning just over last year or so is it's I'm finding that if I'm compassionate with myself, it makes it easy. I'm learning more how to be compassionate with others. And, you know, for some reason I would have thought it would be the other way around. But once I, it's it's like, What's happened recently, I was in a car accident three weeks ago. I don't really remember exactly what happened, how it happened. Um, I was really, really upset when it happened. And I realized this is just nature. It happened. And I didn't get too riled. We'll take care of it. There's you know, ways to deal with it. Well, then last Friday, I found out uh, through the police report that it was my I was 100% responsible for what happened. And at first I felt, I started feeling exactly like I felt the day it happened. But then also blaming was coming in and shaming and like, and then I stopped and I went, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) 
you know, this is this just happened. It's nature, whatever. But then the other part of it was that by being okay with myself, or it helped me to be okay with what was going on, is that I've made a decision to actually contact the person that I hit and apologize for what I've done, you know, and any harm that it's it's caused for him. And I think that I'm realizing it's happening in other places in my life as well, you know, things with my sister, things with other people, that it's it's becoming so much easier to forgive with, with that. I don't know. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks, Haya. Yeah. I want to pass it over to Bob. Bob, you get the last words. Um, the the words are the the thoughts are a little disjointed, but um, I'm I am I, I grew up with a, a an alcoholic parent, and it was pretty rough at times. Um, and I'm 56, and I would have guessed that I'd be you know done with that by now, but I'm not. Um, and um, have made some just wonderful breakthroughs in my life. Um, and loving kindness has been one, and compassion, you know, close close cousin to it. This has been just extraordinary for me. And tonight, um, asking forgiveness was directed to myself, and in giving forgiveness was directed at myself. And that's been really a, a, a beautiful process for me. Um, and as an aside, anyone that has had similar life circumstances, watch the movie um, The Kid. Bruce Willis is a, of all people is the star in it. It's, it's just extraordinary. And then one more movie uh, 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 comparison um, is uh, Fences in Denzel Washington. Troy, I think, is his name. Um, and I've been sort of thinking a lot about how um, this is a guy who grew up in some difficult circumstances and, and was difficult to those around him, in particular those who he loved. And, and it seems to me that there was sort of an inability to have self-compassion for himself in that case. Um, and, and watching that was a, a powerful lesson for me. So, Yeah. Yeah, and that's a beautiful... I, I, when and I recently saw that movie, Fences, um, on Bob's and Mary's uh, recommendation. And it's really a great example of the forgiveness or the lack of forgiveness. And just to have this aspiration, it's a nice place to end tonight, this aspiration that these great rivers of pain begetting pain, resentment begetting resentment, that that just aspire that it end instead of passing it on generation to generation or culturally, you know, but it can end. But it means we have to be willing to turn toward it and not being afraid to feel what we feel, right? Because that's, that's how we see the possibility of love, forgiveness, compassion, joy, it's really in not being confused by what it feels like to face or to open to these places. And this is such a good example. The enormity of his pain from his own childhood made it, it like what was so obvious in that film. It's like he couldn't have been a better dad or partner to his wife than he was. He was doing the best. He said this several times. I'm doing the best I can. This is all I can do with his unfinished business. And maybe that's true. And maybe it was a really powerful step from where he came from to where he ended. But we can really aspire to not, uh, per, to not perpetuate the you know, meeting contraction with contraction, meeting pain with pain. So let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Enough time for a breath or two together. Thanks, everyone, for being here. 
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.